You are listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. My name is Ed Frank, and I am NCBA Senior Director of Policy Communications. And this holiday week, we are going to do something just a little bit different on our podcast. Uh, as you probably already know, NCBA recently launched a longer-form podcast named Cattlemen's Call, and it does a deeper dive into mostly non-policy-related issues facing cattle producers. Uh, this week, the Cattlemen's Call podcast host, Lane Nordland, was in our D.C. office to talk with our CEO, Colin Woodall, and our VP of Government Affairs, Ethan Lane. And to, just to give folks a little peek behind the curtain uh, at NCBA's lobby shop, and, and, ha- and we figured that with the Thanksgiving weekend upon us, our Beltway Beef podcast listeners might enjoy a longer listen into how our D.C. office operates, how they build relationships with folks on Capitol Hill and the administration and with other associations around town. So without further ado, here's Lane Nordland with Colin Woodall and Ethan Lane. Enjoy the Cattleman's Call, and I hope everybody out there has a great Thanksgiving weekend. Thanks for listening. Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello, friends, and welcome back to today's Cattleman's Call podcast. Thank you, Dan McCarty, for the intro there once again. Today finds us out in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're actually in the D.C. office of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And joining us here today, the CEO of NCBA, Colin Woodall, and the Vice President of Government Affairs, Ethan Lane. Gentlemen, how are things going in the nation's capital today? It is another exciting day in Washington, D.C. Of course, here it is right before Thanksgiving, and uh, people aren't looking towards impeachment as much as they were three days ago, but it's still on everybody's mind. Yep. You know, that's that's only because there aren't any live broadcasts today to dissect. And after several days of cable news coverage coming out of last week's festivities, uh, they, they need fresh meat to, to keep churning through the system, and they just don't have it on mm-hmm. this Monday evening. Well, uh, again, uh, we're, we're in D.C., as we mentioned. There's a lot on our airwaves, like you said, impeachment. Um, there's also the discussions of how that impeachment is throwing off progress on certain items that impact farmers and ranchers across the nation. And today, I think our conversation is going to talk about what exactly happens behind the scenes here in Washington, D.C., and all the work that the team that NCBA has here, the boots on the ground every single day, and uh, really really give our listeners a preview about what happens out here and why the work you do is so important to them out in the countryside. And it's just funny, like, we, we were just uh, getting set up here. It is dark out here. It is just past 7 o'clock here in Washington, D.C., I want to thank you, too, for being here away from your families uh, as we actually kick off this Thanksgiving holiday week. But uh, we're, we're a little delayed getting this conversation started because uh, you were doing what you do every day. You, I know you guys were at USDA discussing issues that impact the industry, but let's just talk about behind the scenes here at the NCBA office. Ethan. You know the 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 weekly uh, the weekly ebb and flow here in the Washington office is something uh, we talk about a lot when we're hiring people to come work here in Washington D.C. That you're either wired to handle or you're not, and that's not a judgment of good versus bad. It's it's really just kind of skill set and, and personality based. Our pace is is breakneck, even in a in a vacation week, even in a down week like this. 
you know, we start our, our, our week Monday morning with our staff meeting at 9 a.m. Um, typically, by the time that meeting starts at 9 a.m., uh, most of our team has been in the office for a while, catching up, uh, trading news stories, and, and kind of gearing up for the week, making notes, um, and thinking about what they want to talk about at that staff meeting. But, um, you know, it's, it's really our opportunity to set the tone for the entire week and talk about uh, what everybody's working on, what their priorities are going to be, what we should be looking out for on Capitol Hill and at the agencies. And, and it takes us a solid hour or hour and a half to get through that conversation every Monday. And, you know, it's, it's one of those invaluable things that, that, that help us to understand just how much depth we're working in here in Washington and, and how many different uh, fires we're putting out, so to speak, at, at any one time. Um, and, and, you know, today was no exception. I mean, we had we had uh, uh, meetings in the conference room that were going on all day with binders and laptops open and people hard at work on, on, on issues. And we had people coming and going to Capitol Hill trying to make up some time with, with uh, staffers before everyone goes home for the Thanksgiving holiday. You know, Colin and I and uh, Danielle were over at USDA deep in the weeds in the secretary's office having conversations on, on issues. And, and that's, that's part of, you know, how we kind of measure what we've done in any given week is have we touched in with those key decision makers? Have we made our voices heard? And are we, are we shaping what we're seeing in those news reports we're discussing or are we subject to them? Because that's really kind of how we guide and, and measure whether or not we're being effective back here. Um, and are we, are we reading the news or are we making the news? And you mentioned that it's a little after 7 p.m. Eastern time here. It's still early mm-hmm. for NCBA in Washington, D.C. We joke that a lot of times we're, uh, we're not quite 24-hour service, but we're pretty darn close to it. Our PAC director is usually the first one in here about 6.30 a.m. every morning. And I guarantee you, there's somebody here usually at least till 10 o'clock or later almost every single night. And it's not unusual to see this team here at midnight or later, especially if Congress is in session. If Congress is in session and they're working on an issue and we're tied into it, we are right in the middle of it. We're not at home doing this. Because when you look at the way NCBA engages, we, we do it the old-fashioned way here at NCBA. It's called retail lobbying. That means you're there looking people in the eye, you're not using your cell phone, you're not using Twitter, you're not using your tweets, you're actually up there making things happen. And that's what distinguishes us from just about everybody else in this space right now is because we're willing to actually take the time to go up there. I think one of the greatest examples here recently is when we were working on the uh, tax reform package about three, four years ago now. New Year's Eve, most everybody else in this country is out having fun you know where the NCBA lobby team was? We were on Capitol Hill. New Year's Eve, we were on Capitol Hill, suits and ties, standing outside the door, making sure that our provisions were being held tight and that we were getting the votes to ensure that we could provide relief to this industry. And that, again, is why, if you're a listener right now, if you're, if you're not an NCBA member, why you need to be, and if you're listening right now and you are an NCBA member, that's exactly where your dues are going is to make sure that we're covering it the best we possibly can. That means being in the trenches every day. And with that, it, it takes a lot of staff. And it takes people with uh, diverse backgrounds, whether it's in, in the uh, political realm, in the agricultural realm, in the policy realm. Let's just talk about the staff that's out here, the talent that is in these halls that were on this office, but also the halls of Congress. 
Well, it's it, you know, it's it's now my job. It was Collins for many years to to coordinate that talent and and really to stay out of their way because they know their issues far better than 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 any of us could. That's that's why we hire them. That's why we empower them to carry out NCBA policy that's formulated by our members. And and you know the 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 job that I'm inheriting here and and getting up to speed at as quickly as I possibly can um, is is you know is is one of just trying to make sure they have the tools and the resources available for them to to be the experts that they are and and get that message to the people that, that it needs to be delivered to but also to make sure that that we're positioning ourselves as, a, as an association uh, with a footprint big enough that when that message is delivered the full weight of our membership is behind it and that that, that whether it's a member of Congress whether it's a US senator whether it's uh, you know, a federal agency, uh, a political appointee, or a bureaucrat that will outlast nuclear war and the cockroaches at one of these agencies. That they they understand that 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 when when our when our staffer goes and delivers a message, they're not just delivering it on behalf of that staffer. They're delivering it on behalf of hundreds of thousands of cattlemen around the country that that feel that way. And and that's that's something that 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 has you know really taken a lot of years to establish. But boy, it carries a lot of weight. You know, I'm pretty fortunate because not every person who leaves a job and sees somebody comes in, sees somebody that comes in that's actually better than they were. And that's what we have here with Ethan. I've been doing this job as the VP of Government Affairs for about a decade, 15 years total in the Washington, D.C. office. And it's nice to be able to see somebody who I know is going to be able to deliver better and already is delivering better. And I think that's what we have seen across the board here. Every time we see a, a staff member leave, you think, wow, how are you going to replace that skill set? And we have been uh, really very blessed to see every time that happens, somebody who comes in who's even better than the person before. And we see that time and time again. So not only do we have a great staff here today that is working to deliver for NCBA members, but we also have a network of NCBA alumni across Washington, D.C., across this country, who also help us work issues, whether they're staffers on Capitol Hill, whether they're working in agencies, other organizations, associations. And so it's important that not only do we find great teammates here to be able to deliver, but also make sure that we are fostering this great network that helps us just across the board be even better. Well, and that helps open doors to make sure that we're having the policy that NCBA members set, the voices are heard, and those people help open the doors down the road. Well, it, it's it, you know it, it's an important point that people I think get confused sometimes, and it, it depends on your perspective. If you are a researcher, you know at a land grant university, or you you are in some other way contributing to this industry. Sometimes you see what we do in Washington D.C. or how we do it. Maybe we take a swing at somebody in a press release, or we push back on social media. And you react to that and say, oh, my gosh, that's that's just so so blunt and I, it's, it's objectionable to me. And why can't we get along? People forget that this is a political operation. What we do here in Washington, D.C. is pure politics. And, and, and we are here to carry out our members wishes and, and their policy. And, and our ways of doing that are, are, are you know, varied and, and, and draw on that entire toolbox of, of resources at our disposal. But at the end of the day, that that network that Colin's talking about, sending those those you know, former team members out into the world, whether they be, you know, in, in chief of staff positions on Capitol Hill or committee staff positions or up in the agencies working on policy. 
to have them come out of this shop and have an understanding of what this industry needs and what this industry wants to be successful is is part of building that work network. And yeah, it absolutely opens doors, but it also indoctrinates and educates people across the city about about the impact of this industry and 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 what we what we want to see. And one area that we we keep uh, mentioning membership. What is the diversity of NCBA membership, and how are they represented? Obviously, we're talking about the representation on the Hill, but what is the breakdown of membership? Look, let's let's be honest. I think that's what this discussion is about, kind of this after-hours, no-holds-barred, behind-the-looking-glass, uh, behind-the-curtain type approach. Uh, we all know that NCBA gets accused as being nothing but a voice for the Packers, right? We see it every single day. It pops up. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at our officer team, when you look at our committee leadership, when you look at the people who show up at our meetings to make the policy, those are boots-on-the-ground producers. It's not the packers. It's not the retailers. It's the producers. And it's the producers of all size. And I think that's a key component here, making sure that people understand it's not just the big guys. It's the little guys as well. And what gives NCBA strength in Washington, D.C. is the fact that it's not Ethan's opinion. It's not my opinion. It's the policy book of this association that drives every single thing that we do. And that starts off a lot of times as an idea in a county cattlemen's association where folks might say, you know, I think NCBA needs to be working on X. And let's just use fake meat as a great example of that, we didn't have policy as an association on fake meat until all of a sudden our membership said, you know what, we need to make a change here. They started that discussion. It developed into a policy resolution that was proffered at NCBA's annual convention. We talked about it, debated it. The members of the committee discussed it and passed it. It went to the board of directors and it was discussed and passed, and ultimately it went to every NCBA member for a vote. And then we were able to take that and run with it. And as such, we have been able to deliver some significant wins, including the introduction of the Real Meat Act, which happened here a couple of weeks ago. Congressman Roger Marshall from Kansas, Congressman Anthony Brindisi from New York came together and helped us make sure that we are putting a piece of legislation in place that is reflective of our overall policy, which is directed by the members, not staff. And we can show that this process works and works extremely well. And again, that's what gives us strength in this town. Well, you know, it's 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 funny. I've in my ten years in Washington, I've worked for political campaigns. I've represented different industries. I, you know, I mean, you name it. I'm in the resource world and across the spectrum. And 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 it's this is my first time. In the last in the last four years, working for NCBA, where I have represented I, I, a large association with diverse viewpoints, but it's also, in some respects, the easiest advocacy role I've ever had in Washington because it's 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 positions that I that I'm in line with anyway, and that because of my my background growing up in the industry and, and having horses and having cattle my whole life, um, you know, it, they're the common sense positions that only come from from grassroots perspectives that all see these issues the same way it makes this job so much easier if when your members formulate those policies you go yep that's where we need to be anyway and that's an easy thing for me to do because now i can just focus on strategy right you can focus on implementing rather than gosh how do i how do i spin this you know this mess that i've been handed to 
to deal with. And I don't know that I can think of a time when our membership has presented us with that challenge. They might have presented us with an issue that, you know, has has been an inopportune time for us to to proceed along a route, but it doesn't mean the issue was wrong, right? I mean, it's 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 because it's something that's affecting their operation that makes this the easiest job in Washington in that pers- in that in that in that perspective because there are a lot of people in this town trying to find a way to make a, a winning issue out of something that at the end of the day they don't really agree with, they don't really feel good about. Uh, you know that that's a that's a big deal to have that kind of a, a membership base behind you here in Washington. And again, that's what helps our overall reputation. There was a chief of staff that Ethan and I have both worked with quite a bit for a uh, member of Congress who just recently left the Hill and went into uh, uh, a private operation. And when he left, uh, we sat down and visited. And he said, you know what? When it comes to legislative bar fights, he wanted no better partner than us to be in the room with him. And that was one of the best compliments I think that I have ever received in this job is to be able to have a chief of staff who deals with all sorts of issues, who deals with all sorts of constituents, come to the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and say, at the end of the day, when I've got a fight, I want to be in the same foxhole as you guys. And that, again, just illustrates why you have to have a team here. You have to have a team here every day. You have to have a team here fighting because it's all about relationships. You can have policies. You can have views. You can have positions. But if you don't have relationships, which have to happen face-to-face, then you don't have an effective operation. So as we look at those relationships, though, some people say, you know, nothing really happens in politics. They just just argue back and forth. The impeachment hearings could be an argument for that. But how do you continue to create those relationships in good administrations and bad administrations and who controls Congress as well? You know, I think it was uh, Winston Churchill that said democracy was the worst kind of government, except for every other form of government. It's, it's, it's a messy process. There's no doubt about it. Because when you just step back and you look at, all right, are they really looking at the overall good? Ah, maybe that's debatable. There are a lot of people here for the right reasons. There are a lot of people here for the wrong reasons. But as far as a a body to try to get things done, you have to understand that and you have to be able to adapt. You got to know your strengths. You have to know where you resonate and, and understanding why members of Congress come to Washington, understanding what got them here, and then understanding the process they go through of learning what actually happens here once they've been here for a little while gives you a tremendous amount of insight into how you can best get our get our message across to them. And, and you know, I think that's something Colin and I both have a lot of experience with. It's something a lot of our staff here in the Washington office have, have, have done over the years, whether it's, you know, Kent or Allison or Danielle, you know, uh, Tanner. Um, all of these, all of these people have worked for members of Congress, senators in different capacities, and they understand that thought process that's, that that you go through in those in those offices. And you know, even if they come to Washington with the best of intentions, um, even if they have kind of an idealistic perspective on on what they want to do once they get here, they very quickly learn that first of all, they don't have a single voter in their district that isn't represented by somebody in Washington D.C. There's a lobbyist within 10 square miles of where we're sitting right now for every single American. Even if they don't realize it, even if they're not paying dues into the association that represents their particular brand, they, the, I guarantee you somebody is in this town right now recording a podcast for their membership 
in their particular industry. And, and, you know, that being the case, it's then a matter of finding out how to put those pieces together and how to resonate with those members and how to sort of understand what it is they're seeing on their polling results or their constituent mail that's coming into their office or, or who's showing up by the dozen on a Hill day to complain to them to know what notes you need to hit in order to resonate with that member and arm them to go home and get reelected. Because even if that's not why they came in the first place, at a certain point in the process, you know, that has to be part of their math. And that's something we can always capitalize on. And every member of Congress, as Ethan said, is here for a different reason. So to be an effective lobbyist and effective association, we, we have to figure out what that reason is. And that takes a lot of work being up there talking to them one-on-one, talking to their staff, looking at their voting record, looking at where they're from. I think a great example is a former member of Congress from Harlem, New York City, Charlie Rangel. (laughs) He was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, one of the most powerful committees in Washington, D.C., a great gravelly voice that he was known for. One of the most inside baseball politicians. Oh, absolutely. Uh, The the, the guy, a Democrat, so let's, let's talk about he was a Democrat, uh, we had a great relationship with him, and a lot of people might be scratching their head right now saying, wait a minute, a Democrat from Harlem, NCBA had a good relationship with? Yes, because you know what we did is we sat down with him, and he said, we were in a meeting once, he said, I don't have a single cow in Harlem. But you know what he had? He had over 600,000 people who were looking for some high-quality protein. He had consumers. And when we talked to him about that, you could see the light go off. He's like, oh, yeah. And he ended up being a great advocate for us on trade deals in particular because that was part of the Ways and Means Committee and was somebody we could work with. It also illustrates another very important point. Um, Yeah, as an association or as an industry, maybe we have leanings one way or the other depending upon who the member of our association is, what state they're from, what county they're from. In CBA, we look at these members across the board as to how they approach our industry. We have tremendous champions who are Republicans. We have tremendous champions who are Democrats. We have a lot of detractors who are Democrats, and we have a lot of detractors who are Republicans. And we have to figure out who these people are. The legislative process, the the D.C. process, is a chess game. You have to figure out where you're at on the board, You have to figure out where your opposition is at the board. And if you're not thinking 10 to 12 moves down the line, you will get lost and you will get beat. Well, and and, and it's really easy to go down a partisan path, depending on who's in office at any particular time. Right. It's it's the easiest shot in the world to get caught up in that wave and say, man, the, the, the living is 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 easy if we follow this particular trail right now. But to Colin's point, thinking 10 or 12 moves down the board means you always have to have that, that thinking about what, what do you do next year if, if the world completely changes? Because even in my 10 short years here, I've watched that happen multiple times and, and will watch it happen multiple times you know, moving forward. And, and that means always maintaining those relationships, always keeping friends that are in all of those different camps and, and building those relationships. And it means engaging with people, going to lunch with people, going to have a drink at the end of the day with people who you don't agree with, but that you have a working relationship with. A, you know, a mentor of mine who has gone on to be the CEO of a major trade association uh, told me early in my time here at the NCBA office that you better have somebody you can call in every operation in Washington, even if you hate them, 
there better be somebody you can get on the phone who knows who you are when you call. And, and that is something that, that cannot be understated in, in how we build relationships here in Washington. If you only stay in your camp and you only talk to your friends, you are going to be stunningly unsuccessful here. I mean, that doesn't mean you agree with them. That doesn't mean just because you guys are drinking the same brand of whiskey at the end of the day that you see the issues the same way. I'm perfectly comfortable talking to somebody who wants to see this industry put out of business, but keeping that bright line drawn so that they know exactly where we are on these issues, but working through and looking for those opportunities. And you know where they are. That's right. And and no, that's exactly right. And, And you know, those honest brokers exist on both sides. Doesn't mean you trust them. Doesn't mean you give them the launch codes. But it does mean that you be confident enough in where you are and where our members are to engage. That's what we're being paid for. We're not being paid to sit back here and you know drink good scotch and shirk those those conversations. We're we're being paid to to advocate, and and that means going into dark rooms that people don't necessarily want to go into every once in a while. Yeah, and let's put a good example to that, and let's go back to the last administration, the Obama administration. We had a lot of issues where we were fighting this administration. The waters of the United States were what probably leads that list of issues. But at the same time, we had a tremendous relationship with that administration when it came to trade. The Obama administration, they were focused on trying to help us get more access. And we very easily, because of the things that we didn't agree on, could have just put up a wall and said, you know what, we're not going to we're not going to deal with you. But that's not the way that you succeed in Washington D.C. As Ethan said, you find those points where you can agree and you figure out how you work on that and you exploit that. And as such, we had some tremendous gains on the trade front during that administration because we were willing to say, yes, we agree with you here, but we don't agree with you here. But we're still willing to work with you. And they ultimately found the same way. I would tell you that in in reviewing the eight years of Obama administration, I guarantee you that at the end of the administration, they were talking amongst themselves, say, amongst themselves saying, hey, I really wish we had developed that relationship eight years sooner than they did. Yeah, we, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, even in even in the darkest of, of, of times when you feel like, boy, these people are just out to get us. We occupy a really unique space. Our industry is one that appeals across a broad spectrum of voters. It gives us a tremendous amount of power uh, in order, to, in order to, to, to make those connections. But there are connections to make because it's just as easy for them to separate those two things out and, and you know, leave us in a place where we're, where we're polarized on one side or the other. It's, it's up to us to, to, to give that, that credibility and allow those avenues for, for those unlikely partners to engage. So we need to take a, a little interlude here. Okay. We're going to think a sponsor. And it, it, what we need to do is uh, we, we need to talk about our, our scotch of the evening. I, I think that is an important scotch thing for the, the listeners to understand. Yeah. Yes. So as Ethan just said, every once in a while, you got to have a little scotch. And as we talk about after hours in Washington, D.C., Right now, we are enjoying a fine Lagavulin, which is a 16-year single malt scotch. But in particular, this is the distiller's edition. It is. And, and it's a little-known fact of the Washington wine and liquor at the corner 
uh, down from our from our office is that even though it, the distiller's edition is a uh, maybe I guess more premium bottle than the normal 16 year, and I can hear um, every Arcafer in the country's head exploding at once as we have this conversation. But I, uh, you know, the 16 year distiller's edition is for some reason discounted at the corner below the normal 16 year and i don't understand the reason for that i don't claim to understand the trade relationship specifically with scotch even though ken has tried to explain it to me more than once uh, but all i know is i can buy that 16 year distiller's edition and, and and colin you showed me the light on this quite a while ago uh, cheaper than the regular 16 year and damned if it isn't just a little smoother you know what it is about lagavulin in the isla scotches is because you get a little bit of the sea salt that pops up in this. It's like being on the cliffs. It, and it just hits is, you right in the face. It is. And, of course, you have the peat. As soon as you pop that cork, it truly is like a campfire blowing in your face. Now, now I'm from the West. I'm from Arizona. I, I was raised in a certain tradition. And that means that Crown Royal is the beginning, middle, and end of every conversation where I'm from. Um, now, I know that things like Pendleton have made inroads in some sad parts of 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 the of the uh, Intermountain West, and I I can't answer I can't answer why that has that has been the case. And I will always there will always be a place in my heart for Crown Royal, and a place at my table. But I will say that that uh, Mr. Woodall has has given me an appreciation only in specific circumstances for a, a, a fine single malt Scotch like this. Now, Mr. Nordland here has taken it to another extreme this evening. And, and it's something that, I mean, and I've, I've been insulted today. I've been insulted in the last 48 hours. There are some people on Twitter who feel very strongly about not just me, but my family and my motives and most of the people that I know. Um, and, and some of those people are even from Montana. But if they knew that this man right here, who I consider a dear personal friend, put ice cubes in the single malt scotch that I offered him this evening, I, 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 I just, I mean... At least I didn't put pop in it. You know, can I get you a Diet Coke to top no, that it's, off? It's you? tasting good. You know, I mean, I, I've been in Nevada for a couple of days. I've been drinking pecan punches for most of the last week. And, and I mean, I, I was on the plane flying back from Elko the other day, and I felt like the person next to me was going to move to another part of the plane to, to get away from the, the Amer smell coming coming from my seat. But uh, it, ice in, in, in Lagavulin, that's a, that's a new one for me. Well, like I said, you should have just poured me a drink. Well, this is a this is a, a serve get yourself your own, kind your of own, operation. Yeah. Yep, yep. You, you got to have a little fun. Lane. Yeah, you, well, you we have do. To have a fun watch but but actually, Colin, what 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 we should go do is go have a, a nice shrimp dinner. I will never go to New Orleans with you again. <laughs> you've Russell ruined Nimitz. you've ruined Mr. B's for me. No, but 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 to Colin's point, you know, I mean, look, it, it is we work hard around here. We we start. I might get here at eight thirty in the morning, but I'm you know I'm on my phone by six six fifteen in the morning. So is most of my staff. And, and, you know, it, it's, a, it's a situation where by, by the time we get to 7 o'clock at night and we're around here and we're still talking through these issues and a lot of times we're talking strategy, we're spitballing, um, you know, it, it, it's important to make sure that, that, that we blow off a little steam and, and, and keep this stuff in perspective and, 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 you know, look for ways to bond as a team. And, and so, you know, it, I think to, to some parts of the country they may look at that and feel like, oh, God, you know, how could they be, how could they be doing that? But, but it is, it's an important part of what we do here. It's an important part of the team building. Uh, we spend a lot of time at receptions. We spend a lot of time at dinners, um, you know, and, and, and the, you know, that social aspect is a big part of what 
uh, NCBA members pay us to do is is to be here building relationships and this sitting in this very office we're in now. I mean, there have been members of Congress, there have been uh, people across the spectrum that come in here to 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 BS and talk through issues and try to find some common ground and and that's a that's a big part of what we do here in Washington. It really defines everything about us. I can't tell you the number of times where a bad idea or a bad proposal was nipped in the bud simply because of a phone call that we were able to make to that individual to say, what do you think? This is, this is a bad idea. You guys need to think about this. You can't have that with somebody that you call for the first time. You can have that conversation with somebody that you have a relationship with that trusts you, that knows that you're not going to give them bad information or bad advice and therefore, it gives us that leverage and that power to be able to take a lot of really bad ideas and eliminate them before they ever even reach prime time, before our members ever even know what's going on. And by the same token, it's that kind of dynamic that allows us to shoot down bad ideas right here in our own shop. You know, I mean, sometimes sitting around here, I, I kind of in the war room, you come up with an idea, a strategy that you think is the right one. And what it takes to, to decide if that's going to work or not is five people standing around this room. And it's the one that says, you know what? I had a meeting a week and a half ago with somebody or I had a lunch with somebody. And here's why that's not going to work. But you don't get to that. You don't dig that up in a staff meeting. You don't dig it up in an email chain. You dig it up by, by talking through the issues and working the issue and turning that square peg around and around and around until it falls into that round hole. So in looking at the observations from observers and visitors to our office over the years, there's a couple of things that I usually hear from them. One, they're surprised at how few people are in the office when they show up. If you come into NCBA's Washington, D.C. office at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you may find three or four people. Everybody else is on the hill. They're across the street at EPA. You know, here we are right now. We're looking out the window at the White House complex. If the president were to fly in right now, we would watch his helicopter land. There's nobody else in this space right now that can say that. And that allows us to be able to show, again, the role we play and where we sit in the center of government. We're on Pennsylvania Avenue, 1275 Pennsylvania Avenue, across the streets of the EPA. Three blocks down, we just said, is the White House. Fort Theater is a block and a half away. And right up the street is Congress. And so our team is out there knocking on those doors, talking to those individuals, making sure that they understand what the policy priorities of this association are all about. Well, and, and, and you know, mentioning that makes me wonder if there's any of those spaces in Washington we can't walk where you know, the secretaries don't know who we are when we walk in, where the, the staffers that are in those hallways don't know who we are when we walk in. We're in there so often. Don't you find yourself... If you walk in a, a federal agency or a congressional office and no one knows you, don't you find yourself saying, "Wait a minute, what what's going on here? How have we, how have we missed this?" Or I mean, it, it's it, it, it's it's amazing to me that that you go into these things and we are we are on a first name basis everywhere we go. If Ethan and I were to pool our contact lists right now. We could sell those for probably $10 million. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, because we, speaking we, of that, I, I've got somewhere I need to be. <laughs> yeah, right? Because what we have is we have access to decision makers around town right now where, as I said, we can – 
pick up a cell phone number and get individuals and have these conversations and say, hey, this is where NCBA is at. Have you thought about X? Have you thought about Y? And it doesn't mean they're going to agree with us. I mean, and oftentimes we, but we have the kind of relationship where we can debate it with them and, and, you know, can fearlessly do that because we've earned the credibility that it's not just a crazy that's calling up to rant. It's, you know, hey, we are, we're, if we're calling you, if we're using that cell phone number, it's because we're, we need to communicate something to you that, that matters. And, and we're willing to have that conversation. And that's, that's credibility you build up over over a lot of interaction and, and kind of walking the walk and showing that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And yeah, every once in a while showing that when when you're left out in the cold, you're going to bite back and it's going to hurt. And that's something that we do really well around here as well is, is you know, we can be your best friend. We can also be your worst enemy. But we always want the opportunity to at least have the discussion. That's right. And that's what we can do. We can have the discussion. And it also shows just how Washington, D.C. works. If you get mad at somebody and you pout and go to your corner and say, well, I'm never talking to that person again, you are going to lose out. You have to figure out those areas where you can try to engage them. And again, a portion of that is trying to figure out where there's common ground. A portion of that is educating. There's a lot of individuals in this town that just don't know what we do. And that's something that we have to sit here and spitball is, all right, we have we have a camp of individuals who are firmly supportive of the U.S. beef industry. We have a camp of individuals who are firmly against the U.S. beef industry. And in the middle is an even bigger group of individuals that are with us sometimes and sometimes they're not. And we always have to figure out what do we have to do to connect with them in order to achieve our priority and our priority is delivering on the policies that have been set by these members of the NCBA. Well, and, and it's important to understand how quickly Washington changes too. You know, we have these established centers of power, you know, a, a, a trade association for, for a major commodity like us are our mainstay, right? I mean, we're, as long as we don't do something tragically stupid, we are going to have this, this structure here and this, this influence uh, I, for, for years to come. But swirling around us and all of the associations like us that are sort of establishment Washington are these these movements and associations and super PACs and and funded operations that come and go on a yearly basis or on a on a you know an administration basis or or in a certain Congress or over the life of a certain issue. And, and it's astonishing to me how fast that can happen, how fast somebody can gain prominence and and. You know, in doing so, and I found myself, and I'll, I'll leave out all of the names and, and associations to protect the innocent, but I found myself in the, uh, in the uh, uh, back of a fundraiser uh, a few months ago, and I was standing next to the head lobbyist for a sportsman's groups that every everyone on this on this podcast listening right now will, will know and identify with. And it's not one we always see eye to eye with, but... You know, he and I went to college together and we, we, we go back and, and, you know, we can have that kind of conversation. And we watched this upstart organization auction off fly fishing trips for $25,000 a piece and then auction them back and sell them again. So they're 50000 through the door in a matter of minutes. We watched 500 people in a room uh, uh, with a member of Congress at every table. We watched influence that that should scare the living hell out of every man, woman, and child in this industry be brought to bear from people who are our friends too. 
And that doesn't mean, oh, we're picking, you know, this member that's at sitting at this table is picking them versus us, but it's a constant ebb and flow of influence, right? And it's a constant ebb and flow of what can that new upstart group do for those members in their home districts during an election cycle versus what we can do for them? What pressure can those people apply versus the pressure that we can apply? And, and understanding that balance and understanding our role in it um, is, is also a big part of, of, of Washington in 2019. And Ethan, boy, he hit it. Something we haven't talked about yet are the other groups around. We've talked a lot about our engagement with the administration. We've talked a lot about our engagement on Capitol Hill, but that's only a part of the equation. It's also about engaging other groups in town. Some of them may be like-minded. Some of them may very well be detractors. But what we do is we figure out how we can continue to leverage our message by using both sides. We are the oldest and largest national trade association for the largest segment of American agriculture. And that means a lot in Washington, D.C. But there are other folks that also have inroads into some offices where we may not necessarily have as much of an influence. And we have to figure out how we use that leverage to build coalitions. We have what we call the Barnyard Coalition here in Washington, D.C. So it's all the animals you would see in your typical barnyard. It's the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. It's the National Pork Producers Council. It's the National Turkey Federation, the National Chicken Council, National Milk Producers Federation. We work together very closely on a whole host of issues, marketing issues, environmental issues, trade issues. Then we have a bigger spectrum where we bring in folks like the American Farm Bureau Federation, the National Corn Growers, for example, where we work on issues. And then we also look outside of agriculture. We utilize the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Small Business. We also use national equipment manufacturers. And our ECA, the, the Rural Electric Co-ops. Absolutely other groups that can help us in bigger spheres. And what we've always said is we're going to be a part of those coalitions. We're going to lead those coalitions where we can and try to make sure that we use every opportunity possible to increase and amplify the message of this association. It's, it's, it's a work in progress that never quite ends because, you know, it, it really, every day that landscape continues to change. We find ourselves being you know, one of the few constants in that in that landscape, or at least that's our goal, right, is to is to be that bellwether and 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 let some of that stuff rotate around us, because, you know, our industry is 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 one that that continues to provide something to the American people that they can't really get anywhere else. Um, that gives us a unique a unique insight into that. I mean, recreation or these different areas that we're seeing, you know, kind of rise to prominence. What we're seeing behind the scenes of that is they haven't quite figured out how to how to be grown-ups in this industry yet. And that's not I'm not saying that to be insulting to them. I'm just saying they're 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 fledgling in a lot of ways. They're still getting their feet underneath them. Um, that gives us a, a bit of an advantage if we can use it and we can we can think strategically about it because because we know who we are. We know where we want to be. We know what we what we do and what our members are, are in business to produce. This is a fascinating town, and our system of government is fascinating as well. There's every reason why it shouldn't work, but then also every reason why now, after over 240 years, it still works and works quite well. There are some days when I still question whether it works or not. All right, that's fair. You, you got me there. You got me there. But the fact is, it, it still is a great process. We don't always agree with it. It doesn't always necessarily work in our favor, 
but it always gives us the opportunity to engage. And I think that's the key. We always have the opportunity to engage. You know, I think the frustrating thing for, for anybody who, who does this and loves it is you can't help but get wrapped up in the issues that you're pursuing. And you get tunnel vision, you can pretty quickly. And every big legislative beat I've ever taken in my career, and I would, I'd be curious to know, Colin, if this is true for you too, when you do the postmortem on it and you sit back and you look at how you lost, typically you lost because the system worked the way it's supposed to work. Typically you lost because the members that didn't go your way got more pushback from in their state or in their district or they heard more from somebody doesn't mean they were right or wrong but you know at the end of the day no matter how much of a bad rap these members get they're not going to do anything that they think is contrary to what the people who put them in office want them to do and if and if your members not doing or saying the thing you want them to say it's because they're hearing more from other people than they are from you on that issue so two great examples the first actually goes back to 2006 back in one of my early days here at NCBA. And we were working the horse slaughter issue. Oh, my favorite. Exactly. One that probably uh, everybody who's listening right now is familiar with. If that woman in Rhode Island calls me again and tells me her whole neighborhood's going to stop eating beef if we, stop, if we don't stop feeding her horse, I'm going to quit. Well, with that, and you had Bo Derrick up on Capitol Hill who was selling all of these members of Congress on why they should be against horse slaughter. But during that process, there was a vote, H.R. 503. I will remember that bill name, the number, till the day I die because we spent an incredible amount of time on that. And I was in a member's office, a member of the House of Representatives, before we were heading towards a vote. And this was a member of Congress that typically was very supportive of our industry. And he was kind of on the fence. And I went in to have the conversation with his chief of staff to say, why are you guys not with us? You're always with us. And you know what? He had a stack of papers that looked like it was probably three reams high. And he said, these are all of the letters that I have received from people that are against your position. And then he held up one piece of paper, and it was the letter that NCBA had written. And he said, and this is the only one that I have from your side. And he said, I got to be against you. And it's just politics. So, I, you know, that's, 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 that's one. We could, we could go on and on in, in, in examples of that. But it, it, it's what we deal with and what we have to try to imagine. Also, it, it illustrates why grassroots participation yep. is so important here too, Lane. You know, I'm, for our listeners, we want to thank them for tuning in and uh, – letting us have this conversation and share what really happens behind the scenes here in Washington, D.C. But there might be some of our friends listening today saying, oh, these guys, they're, they're having a good scotch right now. They're, they're laughing, having a good time, and it's really tough out in the countryside. What, what's your message to those producers that, yeah, prices aren't that good right now, but uh, how, how do we continue to go forward and make sure they're having those comments submitted? and uh, having their voices heard and, and understanding the role that NCBA plays here in Washington, D.C. for them. There's a lot of things that NCBA as a trade association can do. There's also a lot of things that NCBA as a trade association can't do. Look, let's be honest. We don't make markets. We just don't. I know a lot of people think that we do, or a lot of people think that we should make markets, 
But that's not our role. Our role as a trade association is to make sure that cattle producers across this country, regardless of where they're located, regardless of size, have every opportunity to utilize the market forces that exist on that day to be able to try to turn a profit. And we know that it's hard. This is not an easy industry. And everybody who's listening to us right now understands that because there's a lot of people that are underwater. And we get that. So where does NCBA engage in that discussion? We engage that in that discussion to make sure that we're doing everything we can to keep the government out of your business. Because if we can keep the government out of your business, it allows you more time to focus on how you can better produce your cattle and market your cattle. Now, when we talk about the current state of affairs, and I know a lot of people are still thinking about the aftermath of the Tyson fire at the beef plant in Holcomb, Kansas. Most people have forgotten that the first organization that reached out to our federal government to ask for oversight and relief was the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We reached out to USDA and asked them to look at the markets to make sure that there was not manipulation, that there was not collusion. We reached out to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, CFTC, to ask them to do the exact same thing. We reached out to the Department of Transportation to see if they could provide us some opportunities to be able to uh, get some relief from hours of service to move cattle around. We were there first, and we were there on paper, not just there in, 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 in um, just rhetoric, but there in actual true action in trying to make sure that we could cover all the issues that we needed to cover. And when the secretary came out and said that he was going to do an investigation of what's, what was going on, uh, NCB was there and supported that because we've made it very clear if there is any indication that there was market manipulation or collusion, then absolutely. Whoever's responsible should be prosecuted to the full extent of the Packers and Stockyards Act. If this investigation comes out with something different, then we're going to have to step back and have a discussion about what's next from the perspective of government regulation. But again, NCBA does not make markets. I, I use this example a lot, and, and you know, it's, it's one that I, that, that I use to inform my understanding of this, I mean, I started my career in the real estate business, and I started it in the early 2000s when we were kind of swinging into one of the biggest bull markets we've ever seen in that business. And, and, and you know, I spent 10 years um, doing probably better than somebody in their 20s should do in, in that business. But when the market crashed in, in 2007 and eight, I also felt every bit of the downside of those effects. I mean, my wife and I were, were gutted. We, we started from scratch and rebuilt. And, you know, I, I remember in that time, I, an intense desire to find a culprit and, 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 you know, somebody's responsible. Somebody did this, right. And, and somebody has caused this. And I think the biggest frustration I've seen in, in this you know, circumstances. We, we look at the markets. We look at we look at the data that we've had to inform uh, where the market's been going for the last couple of years. We look at what we know about market fundamentals and the fact that a free market sends signals when it doesn't like what it's seeing, and that sending those signals in order to inform behavior in different segments of that market. I ignored those signals, as did everybody else in my business. In, 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 in those, you know, 2005 and six era when we felt like, gosh, you know, that nothing's going to stop this, this, this run. And it takes a little bit of time and perspective to step away from that and see that 
nobody did anything wrong, right? Inherently, you were you were you were buying into or applying into a market using the best information you had. But but once you get a little bit of separation from that, you you start to realize that that's how a free market cycles, and that's how that movement has to work in order to demonstrate that that you know that you that you have a functioning market. You have to have the lows to have the highs. Now it would be fantastic to get to a point, to Colin's point, where we can clear enough regulatory hurdles and we can smooth that landscape out enough that you don't have the massive swings, right? And you have a, a market that 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 moves and ebbs and flows in a way that that doesn't leave everybody out in the cold. And you know some of the bills that we're working on now that help to educate producers about some of their risk management tools that are available and some other ways to make sure that they're that they're managing that risk year over year. Some of the educational resources that are out there to help them understand what might be coming down the road and how that maybe informs what their decisions are this year. Is this the year to, 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 to bulk up your herd? Is this the year to trim it a little bit? Is this a year to look at, at, at some value-added programs to make sure that you know, if there are some choices that are being made, they're gonna, you know, the buyers are gonna choose you over somebody else. Um, you know, those are the ways that I think we can add value and help our producers get through this and also quite honestly prepare for the next round because i mean i've got i'm going to break some news right here we're going to come out of this cow calf side of this industry is going to be in the black again and they're going to be in the high margin side of this equation again and that's that's guaranteed the pendulum never stops in the middle but just like they will be in that in that upper hand position again they will also be troughed out again after that and and that's just a reality of how a free market operates and the, the, the best way we can use our time and resources here in Washington is to clear as many roadblocks as possible that are going to add additional pressure on that and, and make that path as easy as possible so that our producer's time isn't spent on 40 hours a week of federal regulatory compliance. It's spent reading those market signals and, and figuring out how to grow their business and lean into those markets and find those opportunities where they're available. And let's give a little historical perspective. So we have... The four big packers that control 80 plus percent of the market today. So five, about five years ago, when we were seeing some uh, record highs for cow calf producers, guess what? The same four packers controlled 80 percent of the market. And I just got done reading a, a fascinating book. It was called Livestock Hotels, and it was a history of stockyards in this country. And a hundred years ago. They were having the exact same conversation that we're having today. Four or five big packers controlling the market. Now, look, we're going to look at every opportunity we possibly can. And this investigation that's going on right now uh, is is the, the most recent iteration of determining whether or not there is undue influence. That has to, that, that's a conversation that has to be had. And we, we're supportive of that. And again, as I said, if there are things that need to be addressed, we're going to address it. But we also have to keep in mind the history of this industry, where we have been, where we have gone. And look, I don't see a whole lot of people sitting in the wings right now wanting to build packing plants. And, and you know, this, this, I think this has to be said, and you guys can decide to edit this out after, after I say it. But, I mean, I'm sorry. This is part of the equation. Is in any circumstance like this, you have people that find it a lot easier to make money by telling you who to blame. And, and, and telling you that, that, that what's happening is somebody else's fault. Somebody did this to you, right? And, and we're seeing that in spades right now. And, and we're seeing that from, you know, uh, some, of these, some of these outside groups, some of which 
um, have have been longstanding critics of of the industry. Others who are uh, newly emboldened with with checks from outside groups. You know, I mean, the Humane Society of the United States has made no bones about the fact that they are actively investing in in groups that will that will destabilize animal agriculture. And, and we're seeing that take a lot of different forms right now. But what's, what's clear is there's a boom market right now in sna- selling snake oil to producers who are hurting. And, and you know, I mean, there, there's, really, there's really just, an, I mean, there's a special place in hell for people like that. And it, it's incredibly frustrating to me because, you know, they're capitalizing on people at their, at their weakest. And, and, you know, yeah, fine, it's, it's frustrating that, that, you know, I'm one of the people being called out by name. That, that our CEO is being called out by name, that our officers are being called out by name by some of these people. But the, the fact is, when you look at our record, when you look at what we're producing, when we look at the bills we're introducing, and these same people are, are going out and putting out press releases and taking credit for that work, and they're telling producers around the country, no, 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 we did that. You know, the real media is a great example of that. Like I said, feel free to delete this, but I've had just enough scotch that I'm going to go ahead and get this off my chest. You know, I mean... We, we helped draft that bill. We named it. We, we found the co-sponsors. We created that bill out of thin air. And within 10 hours of that press release going out, uh, U.S. Cattlemen's Association took credit for it. They didn't find out about that bill until they read our press release. And they just flat lied and have taken credit for that bill and about five or six other things just like it. And, you know, I have no problem in the world with a competing organization having a different perspective on how this industry needs to be needs to pursue its its objectives. I think that's a healthy thing. I think that debate amongst our our membership and amongst this industry is an absolutely healthy thing. It, healthy thing. It keeps everybody in this conversation honest. But if you're lying to producers when they're at their weakest point. If you're misrepresenting what you've done or what we've done in order to get that point across, you're doing nothing more than making a complicated situation even more complicated. And, and shame on you if that's the way you've decided to spend your time. NCBA is not the solution to everybody. One of the greatest attributes of this industry is the fact that we are independent. And so people are allowed to have their own opinions and we support that. But we are always going to sell you a solution. We're not going to sell you the devil. And we also need to make sure that everybody understands everything else that's going on behind the scenes. We're not a one-trick pony around here. The fact that the Waters of the United States rule is gone is because of the work that NCBA did. The fact that manure is not a Superfund substance is because of the work that NCBA has done. We have death tax relief because of the work that NCBA has done. And that list goes on and on and on because we have people that are working every day here on a whole slew of issues that have an impact on a producer's ability to stay on their land. And that's what it always drives down to for us as the staff of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Can that cow-calf producer stay in their operation? Can they do what they do every day, producing high-quality beef without the government getting in and mucking things up? Speaking of that, do we have enough time to talk about sustainability? Sure. 
So, you know, this is a conversation that, I mean, I come to from an odd perspective because as executive director of the Public Lands Council, uh, we're a member of the USRSB. But, I mean, we've been sort of a, a fly in the ointment, I, I guess, in that conversation for quite some time. Because, I mean, and it's it's true in a lot of areas for PLC because we have such a pure policy book, right? I mean, it's a, it's, it's cow-calf. It's federal lands grazing permittees. It's, it's cattle and sheep operating on, on grass. And that gives us in the PLC space, uh, you know, a much cleaner field to operate from on, on some of these larger industry issues. Every other, you know, association, state affiliate that's involved in that conversation um, has a lot more, you know, complex math uh, to, to, to go through. You know, that being the case in my new role, obviously, you know, we're, we're engaged in this thing. And, and I wrote an op-ed a few weeks ago um, talking about this issue and talking about NCBA's engagement. And the vitriol we hear, the anger we hear about NCBA engaging in a discussion about sustainability is one that, I mean, I think it's important for people to understand. I get because I think, I mean, I maybe more than a lot of people wrestle with that myself. And, and how do we... How do we maintain our integrity as an industry and still push back on these people that I know are saying bad things about us, right? And I know are characterizing us incorrectly. And, you know, the thing that I come away from with is, is no different than any other conversation that we're engaged in here in Washington is these people are going to continue to talk about how beef is produced and they're going to continue to talk to our consumers about it, rather whether we're involved in that conversation or not. So the question that producers who are angry about our engagement there need to ask themselves is what do they want? out of that discussion you know do do they do they want us to try to shape what is said and and do they want us to try to keep some of these folks honest um you know do they just need to hear that we don't trust some of these groups any further than we can throw them i mean you know i i think that's a fair statement right but but that doesn't preclude us from needing to engage with them and try to shape the messaging that's coming out because as hard as we may work it goes back to Colin's anecdote from earlier, right? A stack of letters from constituents in a district and one letter from NCBA. And the fact is most of our members are awfully busy running their operations. They're not dialing all day. They're not calling people all day. They're not, they're not advocating all day. They pay us to advocate on these issues for them. Meanwhile, some of these organizations, whether it's the World Wildlife Fund or, or the Nature Conservancy or any of these others have these activated email lists, they have phone trees. Um, they can turn out a lot of people to comment on something with a very low time commitment. You know, hey, hit send here and submit your comments. You know, call this number and read this script. It's, it's a very low bar and they get a very high amount of participation in that. And so, you know, I really think it's important for, for folks around the country that are in this industry to understand what it is we're facing in, in these organizations. They're incredibly motivated. Uh, they're highly funded. HSUS, I think, has about $140 million annual policy budget. That's not their operating budget. That's their policy budget. So, you know, when, when you talk about how we hold our ground against groups like that, it's not by burying our head in the sand. It's not by hiding. It's not by saying you're wrong, so I'm not going to give you a spot at the table. It's by engaging and it's by mixing it up and it's by by fighting for our positions there. And I, you know, I, 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 I it's one of these things that that's frustrating because when I hear someone and I had a guy call me today from Alabama and I mean he chewed me up one side and down the other for a good forty minutes and he was just as mad as he could be, and and I get it. I get every bit of the frustration that was in his voice as he was conveying this because why would i pay into an association that is 
talking to these people who want to put me out of business? And, you know, the only answer I can give to that is we're talking to them because they want to put you out of business. And because if we don't talk to them, they're going to continue that march and they're going to continue that action. And if we can shape that even a little bit, that's time well spent on behalf of our members. Voids are like potholes. They're going to get filled at some point in time. The question is, are they going to get filled with your message or the opposition's message? And I think that's what's, uh, what's very interesting about this, this conversation we just had with Ethan. Because when you look at the relationship of, of NCBA's engagement with the U.S. Roundtable, the Global Roundtable, and when you look at the piece that came out from the World Wildlife Fund, WWF, just, what, about a week and a half ago? Yeah, about 10 days ago. Yeah, which was very positive in regards to the role that ranching plays. That only happened because of our engagement. Had we not engaged, I guarantee you that that entire piece would have been much different than what we saw. It, it would, and I've been in some of those conversations, and you, you, know, you see the perspective that some of those people take as they engage with you, and, and, and it's only through that dialogue that you shape it. Well, ranching's bad. Well, is it? What's your data informed by? Well, I just know. Okay, well, let's talk through some of that. You know, how, how, how do you have a wildlife corridor uh, through a ranching area if not for the ranchers maintaining the habitat that those, that those deer are being attracted to? What would that corridor look like if the deer didn't have an unbroken landscape to, to move through? I mean, you know, like, I, like I said earlier, I started out in the real estate business and, and selling ranches. Guess what happens when you sell a ranch to somebody who doesn't want to run cattle? No wildlife. No wildlife because how can you have wildlife if you're going to make it into 10-acre parcels? And, and, and if you're going to fence all of those 10-acre parcels. Well, if they don't graze anything. Well, that's right. And, and you know, I mean, that's not even getting into the, the benefits of grazing that landscape that needs that, right? And our producers around the country are all nodding their heads as they're listening to this because they know that you're talking about a landscape that has to have that grazing component. And if it doesn't, it dies. And, and so that balance and what we provide is something that has to be pointed out to some of these people because it's foreign to them. Because they're, by and large, and... I'm going to be a little xenophobic here. They're not from where we're from, right? I mean, nothing delights a Westerner more than an activist from the, you know, the Northeast that flies out to the middle of the West to tell us how to manage land. I mean, it just nothing, nothing lands better with a rancher from the West than somebody from Maine telling them how they ought to run their operation. But the fact is, that is a lot of what we have, right? Those, those checks that go to the Nature Conservancy or the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership or the World Wildlife Fund all have the memo line filled out. Those big donors have very specific deliverables in mind when they give those people a million dollars. They're not just throwing it into the pothole that, that Colin was talking about earlier. They have, they have goals. Well, like what I always like to tell producers when I'm speaking or engaging with them is that they have other groups that have been telling their version of their story for 20, 30 years. And that's where their, those donations are coming from. And that comes back to the importance of advocacy and paying a membership due to an organization that they, that they choose to be a part of because they're working on their behalf. And these other groups are raking in millions of dollars and creating a narrative that does not follow the real nar narrative out in rural America, out on the nation's ranches. Right, you, and, and you see that in, in conversations with some of these groups where they'll say, you know, you'll, they'll have specific employees that'll come into our office and say, hey, we get it. We understand why you're mad. 
We understand why you disagree with what we're doing. And we agree with you that it's the wrong course of action. But man, we're getting these checks. And they're very clear about what they want us to do with that money. They're, they have personality conflicts that, you know, despite, despite whatever, you know, whatever machinations we have in this industry, we don't suffer from, right? We, it's pretty easy to know where our producers want to be on these, on these issues. They want the real story told. They want, it, they want people to understand the benefits that they provide, and they want people to know what happens if grazing is not there to, to manage those atmospheres, those, those environments. And, and, and the fact is these other groups don't have that advantage. They have a financial advantage, but that's about it. That provides opportunity for us if we can use it, but we have to engage in order to get that done. We have to engage, and also we have to understand that when Ethan and I get up in the morning, looking at ourselves in the mirror, shaving, we can look at that person staring back and realize we're doing the right thing. We know exactly what it is that this industry does to preserve our natural resources, to preserve the overall integrity of this industry and also to make sure that we are always looking out for the welfare of our cattle and all that comes together to make sure that at the end of the day this industry is providing every consumer not only here but around the world the highest quality eating experience the safest quality eating experience that they could ever hope to find yeah and you know the the interesting thing about that is, I mean, if you look at, I mean, I, I I'm a lobbyist for the industry, so I'm a shill, obviously. But I mean, long before I came to work for NCBA, when I got this job, my wife was funny. She said, "Man, they, you could not have have tripped into a better fit for you because of how you spend your time." I mean, you know, I I mean, I I loved I love to cook. It's a hobby of mine. I love to I love to 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 find different cuts of beef. I remember. Years ago, you know, 2002, 2003, when you first, you know, are out in the world and you're buying your own groceries, the easiest dinner you and your wife can cook is a steak and a baked potato, right? I mean, it's it's hard to screw it up. And at the time, I mean, you know, the quality, even in a good grocery store, it was at a different place than it is today. And 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 when you walk into any grocery store today, the, the, the different levels of quality, the different choices you have as a beef consumer, what an incredibly cool time to be in this industry. I mean, look at what we're turning out. Look at look at the choice. Look at the flavor profiles. Look at the variety. What an amazing time to be in this industry. Five years ago, you couldn't talk about a a, a tomahawk ribeye because people didn't know what in the world those even were. Right. And then here you go to just about every meat market in Washington, D.C., in the Washington metro D.C. area, and you can find one. I, I put this on Instagram the other day. I, I was in my butcher shop in Delray, Virginia, and, and I, uh, this guy knows me on site now. And I was I was on a run with my kid in his jogging stroller, and I, I stopped into the meat market because I was I'm fat and I was tired of running. And and so I, I walked into the meat market and I and I walked in and he saw me from across the room and he said, "I got something for you." And he, he led me over to the butcher case and he had tomahawk. He called it a fifth rib tomahawk. It's a chuck eye that they've cut into an additional tomahawk at the end of the at the end of the rib and and i bought every one of me had and i cooked them one a night for the next couple nights 
And and I'll tell you what, I mean that would have been grind before uh, uh, Seven Hills Food down in down in Lynchburg, Virginia decided to figure out how to cut this. And that's the kind of innovation that we're seeing. And and what an amazing what an amazing thing. And they said, you know, these tomahawks are everywhere, and it's driving us crazy. And we wanted to find a different way to offer the same experience without it, you know, without it being something I, I, that's that's only for a premium consumer. And we wanted to have a lower access point. What a what a cool thing to see. Oh, it's amazing. Just look at our industry as a whole. There's no such thing as a chicken knife, right? There's a steak knife. And the flavor, the experience, the fun that comes with beef is unlike anything else out there. And a great example, when we first moved in this building right here, again, 1275 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., we wrote into our lease that they had to allow us a grill and a smoker. So on the roof right now is a 42-inch Weber Kettle Ranch grill and a pellet smoker. And one of the first things that we did is we fired up that smoker. And at the end of the day, we got up there and realized, man, that thing's not cooked. It should have been cooked. What happened? Well, what happened is where we had it set up was pretty close to the intake for the HVAC system of this building. And so... Throughout this building, people were getting a whiff of some cooking beef. And you know what they were doing? They were going to the roof, and they were opening the lid. And every time they opened the lid, all the heat was escaping. So we had to actually start manning the smoker to make sure that we could cook what we needed to do. And that's a great illustration of why when it comes to life's great moments, you go out for a steak. You don't go out for a chicken breast. You go out for a steak. Yeah, that really is true, and 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 what a what an incredible calling card we have here in D.C. I was, uh, we were up there. We we so we're from the Southwest, a couple of us, and and you know West Texas, we include in that. Uh, I, and you know, well well done, Mister Lane, <laughs> well done, touche. If you were from the Southwest uh, in in late August or early September, Hatch Chilies are are really the only way you should be spending your time. And so every year around here in the NCBA office in D.C., around late August or September, we, we roast off uh, uh, several, uh, uh, several big boxes of, of hatch chilies. And we were up there roasting those off, and I got an email from a friend over at the White House that said, what's that smoke coming off your roof? What are you guys up to over there, and how quickly do I need to make it over there in order to be a part of it? And, you know, I mean, that's a, sending smoke signals off of the roof of the NCBA office in D.C. Is, is, is an important lobbying tool in and of itself. Because not only was there smoke, but there were cowboy hats. That's right. And from our roof down in what's called Freedom Plaza, you can see what's going on up here. And you will see the smoke and you'll see the cowboy hats, especially when our members are in town. And that is a, a tremendous calling card for this industry. Because at the end of the day, it comes down to the producers on the ground who have spent about an hour now listening to us drone on about what we do each and every day. But what we do each and every day is about them. It's about making sure that they and their families can keep doing what they do, not only now, but in the future. And this has been a great opportunity to talk about kind of the inside baseball lane. And uh, hopefully all the listeners out there will give us some some good props. And we'll do this again because Ethan and I are always happy to talk about this association, to talk about what we're doing, because we have nothing to apologize for. No, not not only do we have nothing to apologize for, but I, I, I think we're at a point where, you know, not only us here on the staff, but our membership needs to start going on offense and talking about 
what we do and how we do it. I mean, everywhere I go, I know it's the same for you. And, and, and Lane, I know you hear this in, in places you go, even though I know you need to remain impartial in this as, you know, journalistic ethics and all of that. Um, you know, I, I think what's clear is we have a silent majority of producers who are running their operations and doing their business day to day who who are incredibly proud and invested in their association and what they're a part of. And what we're able to accomplish as a as a as a group, and and you know for too long we've kind of taken taken uh, slings and arrows and 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 huddled over and and it's time for us to kind of throw our shoulders back a little bit and 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 talk about what we do and go on offense and 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 anyone who wants to stand in the way of that, I, I you know if they know Colin and I probably ought to buckle up because it's going to be a rough couple of years. We've already shown it. There's a difference in the approach that NCBA has taken. If you're with us. We're going to fight with you, and we're going to fight with you every single day. If you're against us, we're also going to fight against you, and we are not going to sit back and take that high road. We're going to call you out. We're going to be professional like cattle producers are, but we're going to make sure that the facts are out there. We're going to, we're going to be professional, but we're coming for you. I think that's important for people to understand. We're coming for you. Well, gentlemen, we've been here for an, over an hour and 13 minutes having this discussion and i've learned that you do not put ice in scotch good scotch but no i i I think we have so much more to take away from this obviously it's been a long day you guys spent a lot of time at usda today when we were supposed to be doing this interview this afternoon i know you need to get back to your families but uh want to thank you so much for taking time here Uh, it's thanksgiving week my last question uh what are you serving on thanksgiving day ribeyes I I have a 15 pound full pack of brisket going on the the grill at my house. That's all. That's all I needed to ask. But friends, thanks for joining us here today. And if you have questions, send them to Colin and Ethan. They'll answer them. They'll talk with you. If you have concerns, reach out to them, and uh, we'll continue to have these conversations. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about what the DC office is up to every single week, there is the Beltway Beef Podcast. And that is policy-specific. We're not going to dive too much into policy on the Cattleman's Call podcast, but we saw this as an opportunity to really show the behind-the-scenes, as we've been calling it, the after-hours at the NCBA DC office. But make sure and subscribe to the, the Beltway Beef podcast, where those issues that are being debated on Capitol Hill each and every day, uh, the, the DC insiders will give updates every single week. Uh, in, in real time. So make sure and subscribe to the NCBA's Beltway Beef. And also for any questions you have about the Cattleman's Call podcast or suggestions for shows or folks folks we might interview, make sure and visit us online at Cattleman's Call. Just visit ncba.org today. Gentlemen, have a good evening. Friends, thanks for joining us here today. I'm Lane Nordland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.